Welcome to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Good morning, Imago Day. We're glad that you're with us today. There's a woman here that I terrorized all through my high school years. My mom's here with us today. Hey, I'm, uh... <laughs> she still likes me, so that's good. We are, um, you know, we've just finished uh, a series going into Easter on hearing the voice of God, and then we celebrate. We celebrate Christ's death and resurrection, and uh, for, for probably a lot of people, we're like, okay, we're good till Christmas. But what I wanted us to do is over the next few months to really dig into what it is that we celebrated at Easter. Because the reality of Christ's death and resurrection isn't like just shows up once a year at Easter. I want to tell everybody, he's going to be alive next week too if you want to come back. And and you did, so um, thanks, that's good. And, and the book of Romans is, is probably the Apostle Paul's most complete explanation of what God did when Jesus Christ died and rose again. It's a letter that throughout history has um, literally transformed the face of the Western world as well as the church. Augustine, uh, one of the great theologians that so many people still read today, was, was basically came to faith by picking up the book of Romans and reading it and experiencing the Spirit of God alter his life, where he went from being someone who wrestled with God, fought with God, uh, was caught up in his sins to someone who is experiencing freedom and went on to be one of our greatest theologians. Martin Luther read the book, and he was a priest in the Roman Catholic Church at the time where there was a lot of corruption. And he would be um, so distraught day in and day out, knowing that the penance that he did for his sin wasn't sufficient. And when he read the book of Romans and understood the gospel, he realized that we have been saved by grace through faith. And not only was Martin Luther reborn, but the entire Reformation was born that day in Luther's heart. And for literally thousands of years, this book has been transforming people's lives as they've read through it. And so what I'm excited about over the next few weeks is that as we go through this book, this book continues to have the power to transform God's people. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter one. We are going to look at this book over the next two months. But first, here's the situation in Rome. When, we think, when you think about the church in Rome, Today we might look at it and assume there was a big cathedral, sort of like the Catholic Church. The reality is that when Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome, the church in Rome was probably half of this section uh, all complete, right? 50 or so people. And, and they would have been broken into different house churches, so he, we're not even sure if they knew each other. 
So there was divisions that were happening even among those 50 people. Can you believe that? No, yes, of course we can. We do that with each other. And, and there, the Jewish people were kicked out of Rome under the emperor Claudius. But Nero has just become emperor and allowed Jewish people back in. And so you have Jewish people who are coming in who also are believing in Christ. And then you have the, uh, another whole group of believers in the church who are non-Jewish people, and the word for that is Gentile. It's essentially like the word barbarian. You and I are Gentiles, probably for most of us, right? We, we have no lineage back to Abraham. We don't have a connection to the law or the Torah or the Old Testament scriptures. And so we, by nature of birth and genealogy, don't really belong to the people of God in terms of the Jewish people. But as Gentiles have been brought into this salvation in Christ, now you have Jewish people and these Gentile people in a church together, and they're very suspicious of each other, and they're dividing against each other over the lines that basically culture sets for them in that Roman day. And so everyone is suspicious, and Paul is writing for a couple of reasons. One is that he wants to move his home base, which is Antioch, a city called Antioch, and he's a missionary, and he uses that as home base to get the gospel out. He wants to move that home base to Rome, and he also wants the church to fully understand the gospel, because he has a point that he's aiming for with this book, and it's that they would grasp that they are not to be divided amongst themselves. But they have been united in Christ. In chapter 15, it's very clear that this is where he's going. Because Paul believes that if we divide between one another, brothers and sisters in Christ, along the same lines that the culture divides, then the principalities and powers of the world have won. And he's writing to say those forces of the world have been conquered in Christ. So there is now no division between us, but we are one new humanity that he has created through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the reason why Romans matters to us today, because literally in times like ours, to be a follower of Jesus we need to understand and live with the confidence that Jesus truly is the Lord of all things. I think it's easy for us to marginalize our church experience, but believe that money and power and military might, those are the things that really have control in the world. And so our security easily latches on to money or power or privilege, or whatever that thing is. And thus we hope in those things that our hearts latch onto. And the gospel is the good news that we have been unentangled from those lesser things so that we can fully wrap our hearts around the Christ who has wrapped his heart around you. We need this gospel because we're guilty of those same divisions that they were 
we ask ourselves, who is it that we'll be united to in this world? And most of us get that information from whatever the culture says. That's where we draw our lines to. And so in the Church of America and the Church of the West, you have a very divided church. And Jesus' own prayer was that we would be one so that the world would know that the Father sent me. We have a lot of work to do. And finally, the reason we need this book is for our own transformation personally and corporately. What difference does it make that Jesus is Lord of the world? And as you're gonna see, it makes all the difference. It's the difference between a faith that radically transforms us in the love of God and a faith that never really gets off the ground past saying I believe. And so the book of Romans is a book that has been called the cathedral of faith in terms of the way that Paul writes it and lays it out. He writes very densely. And so I would ask that you read along with us as we go through the next uh, eight weeks. And if you don't have a Bible, you have a phone, there's an app, get the Imago app. We have the Bible on there. If you don't like to read, there's a little dude in there who reads it to you. So it's amazing. I don't know how he got in there. And then the other thing would be to show up for eight weeks. Like imagine, right? Eight weeks straight, come to church. Don't miss this because you can't just jump in and out of this book because it really is a symphony. It, it, it's, it's a vast theology that Paul creates that has these four major stanzas of one chapters one through four and then five through eight and then nine through 11 and then 12 through 16 and yet they all kind of interweave together where he picks up beats and rhythms that he was using back here and he brings them in later to bring together this one beautiful picture of the gospel and so what do we mean when we say gospel uh, I want you to look with me at Romans chapter one, and we'll look at verses one through four. And this is how Paul defines the gospel. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so Paul uses this language of gospel, and he does it, it's a word that means good news, the good announcement. And he has two basic definitions of Christ. He says, as to his earthly life, he comes from the line of Abraham, the line of David. He comes as the king of Israel. But as to his death and resurrection by the power of the spirit, he is declared the son of God. Now, son of God isn't a term that you and I throw around a lot. But in that day, there was only one person who was declared son of God, and it was Caesar. 
So Nero, Claudius, all those Caesars were also called son of God, meaning they ruled underneath God. They ruled at his right hand. So when Paul is saying this to a church of 50 or so people in Rome, right, with Nero ruling, and by the way, he is a nut job, okay? They know he is, they, he, what Paul is saying here is radical, uh, more than radical, it's, it's even dangerous. And so he's either just saying it to kind of go, yeah, that'll, that'll kind of rile him up, or he's saying it because he absolutely believes it's true, that Jesus is the king of the world, and his death and resurrection prove it. And so when Paul, that's sort of the very small summary of everything he's going to do in the next 16 chapters. And he gets to verse 16 and he says, look, I am not going to be ashamed of this kind of massive declaration of saying that Jesus is king, not Caesar, of saying that Jesus is the king of Israel. I am not ashamed of that because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. When he, when he talks about this gospel being first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, the truth is that when we think about the story of Jesus Christ, it's very easy for us barbarian types, right? If we weren't raised with the Old Testament law and with all of our sort of Jewish genealogy, to, to think to ourselves that God had a plan and he had this people called Israel, but they kept messing it up. And then the Trinity got together and they're like, what are we gonna do? Plan A isn't working. And they were like, how about plan B is, Jesus, you go down and die for Gentiles. Okay, we'll do that. That's not how it went down. It has always been a very Jewish story and God's plan to put the world back together after Genesis 3 in the fall has always been through the people of Israel. And so he says this Jesus has come through the line of David, but he also is son of God, king of the world. And he says this gospel has the power. It's a word that means dynamite. It, 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 it has the idea of energy behind it, that God uses this announcement to radically change and put to death the forces of evil in the world. He uses this gospel to soften hearts that have been hardened. He uses this gospel to turn people away from being bent over to worship idols to glorify the one true God. So he says, I'm not ashamed. And I'm not going to be ashamed on the day that I stand before Nero and he threatens to kill me. And I won't be ashamed when I breathe my last breath because I said Jesus was king, not Caesar. And so... Basically, he uses this word for this very Jewish story that we find ourselves in of the righteousness of God. 
It's a word that for us, I think in our context, we think of a God that is self-righteous. Like he's going, I am right and everybody else is wrong. And if we think about it that way, we miss the intent behind what Paul is saying. The righteousness of God all through the Old Testament has meant that God is faithful to his promises, that God makes right on what he says he will do, that God is loyal and faithful and he will fulfill his covenant, his promises. So what Paul is saying is that through this gospel, God is revealing his faithfulness to the promises that he has given long ago, okay? And so you will see this phrase, the righteousness of God, over and over and over. And when we see it, he is saying, this is God coming to fulfill his promise to you. And then he backs up and he says, now let's start with the whole view of history, okay? In chapter one, verse 18, he starts with the line, the wrath of God has been revealed, which is not fun to hear, really. And he goes on to say that essentially God created this beautiful creation and that whether you were a Jewish person or a Gentile person, a non-Jewish person, that you could see from creation itself that there must be some design, there must be some hand behind it. It's not an argument against evolution or not evolution. It's asking a question of first cause. Was there a God who's had intention and purpose behind this miracle that we call life? I thought about it the other day, you know, when you see all the technological advances that we're making, which is incredible, and there's a theory called, um, what is it, Moore's Law, where it doubles every two years the speed at which technology moves. Now they're saying it's gonna move at 500 times every two years, which is, I don't know, we should get jetpacks pretty soon. I was promised them in the 80s and they never showed up. So I'm not that impressed with your AI. But, but I thought, wouldn't it be amazing if you could create energy that sustained life out of like this mushy ball of flesh and if it just beat like this over and over with oxygen and some kind of blood mixture like that energy would sustain a person without electricity or anything for life like we still can't do that we can't go oh yeah I just put together a human heart and therefore you're going to be alive we still have to plug the thing in. God, how did that happen? Was it just by chance? Was it meaningless? Or was there a God behind it? And so in Romans chapter one, he says, we, we, we should have known that there is a miracle bigger than us. But there was a divine, there was a sort of a human exchange that took place. In verse 21, he says, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. And though they claimed to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory 
of the immortal God for an image made to look like mortal human beings. In verse 25, he says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator. The exchange that took place was that humanity lived within this beautiful harmony with God, but rather than worship that God or give thanks to that God, we traded in the, the true God for whom we bear his image for a mirror that we could look back to ourselves, that we would bend over away from God and into our own hearts, that instead of loving God and others, we started to love ourselves. And we put our hope and our security in created stuff. For them, it might have been weird idols, which were like, that's so stupid. And then somebody comes along and says, here's 100 grand, if you, and you're like, I'm all in. Like, it's paper, but money, power, those are just different versions of idols. All of our hearts are bent away from God. We have all exchanged his truth for a lie. And then the scripture tells us in Romans 1 that God said, okay then, I'll give you over to what you want. And this cascading effect of depravity takes place. And it goes from darkness to darkness to darkness. 150 years ago, Frederick Nietzsche declared that God was dead. He was a devout atheist, proudly an atheist. But what's interesting, when we hear that phrase, a lot of Christians are like, yeah, he was wrong. Um, he wasn't that excited about the idea as we think he was. He didn't see the idea that God was dead as an entirely good thing. He said, because the minute that we take away God, any basis for morality goes with it. You don't get to keep any set of right and wrong like that Christianity or Judaism would, would share if you take God out of it. It's all intertwined. And he said, there may be one day some kind of higher evolved creature that could create an inherent and coherent morality, but that doesn't exist today. And he said, instead where things will go is complete nihilism, which means there is no meaning, and whatever is true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me. And we still hear that today in the streets of Portland. But he said it won't stop at nihilism. Nihilism will go towards totalitarianism meaning the person with power will enforce what's true for them. And so 100 years before Hitler, Nietzsche declared that 100 million people would die under totalitarian regimes. He was a prophet in that sense. But Nietzsche is just basically quoting Romans 1 for us. He's saying that this level of depravity just keeps going down until we're, we're at a place where it's like, it doesn't matter. There is no truth. There is no lie. What's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me. But we don't really believe that. If we did believe that, then there would be a lot more dialogue going on in the public square. But there isn't any. Facebook, social media, 
um, the protest, like the way we interact with each other is not civil. And it's not like we're going like, oh, that's interesting. You've really changed my mind. You would never say that. We're at a point at which we want the government to enforce whatever it is we think. And even if that's different than what you think, that's called totalitarianism. So you have a nihilistic world where everybody's creating their own reality and the bigger group with the most votes gets to rule over and oppress the other. Romans 1 basically predicts that this is the world without God. And it's a world that you and I live in. And we look for those places to say, how can I be a Christian? Uh, there, There seems like there's a lot of good points to this particular issue. It's a justice issue. I want to jump on board. And then you jump on board and you realize, wow, they're taking it to a place that that I really can't go. And then you think, well, maybe there's this one over here and I'll jump on board with that one because I think Jesus would be for, and then you realize they're taking it to a place that Jesus would never go. And so you go, where do we, where do we fit in this public dialogue as people who follow Jesus? Can you be pro-life and pro-woman? Don't answer, I know. There's a lot of different opinions, right? But Jesus, if you think about each one of those conversations, is really the tip of an iceberg that goes way below the surface. And underneath here are bigger questions and bigger conversations that we don't get to have anymore in the public square. Like, what does it mean to be human? What is, the, what is the meaning of life? What is, why are we here? How are we supposed to treat our neighbors? What is good? What is true? What is beautiful? Jesus didn't go around jumping in and out of identity political groups. He trafficked underneath the surface at the deeper questions of what it means to be human, at the core issues where we are really broken, bringing freedom, not to issues, but to people, so that they could create a different kind of humanity in the world. We are all, apart from God, stuck in this treadmill that goes down. And so as Paul writes this, and he, expra- he basically is explaining in chapter one, this is the situation with the Gentiles. Now he's writing, and he knows there's Jews there, and what does a Jew think as he listens to this? They're going, that's right, judge them. They're horrible people. We have the law, we have circumcision, we have all these other things, but those barbarians who would do something like that, they need to be judged. We fall into the same thing. We hear these types of things and the church stands back and goes, the world is going to hell. Those people out there, they're the bad ones. We're lucky. We have the Bible and I was baptized and I have a certificate from Sunday school somewhere and I'm a good person. Paul says, not so fast. Chapter two, verse one, he says there, you therefore have no excuse You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you pass judgment, you do the same things. 
Verse five, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 16, this will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, my gospel. And so Paul stands back and he says, look, I know that you're good Jews and I know that you've had the, the Torah, right? You had the Old Testament law, the commandments. You have the covenant of circumcision. But all it's done is create a self-righteousness in you. That you think because you have those things, you're right with God. But you are under the power of sin just like the Gentiles are. Jew and Gentile alike are under the power of sin. And you are awaiting this final day that the Old Testament speaks about, the day when God will come and make the world right again. It's the day of judgment where he will judge justly and rightly and evil will be banished. And Paul is saying that the Gentiles as well as the Jews, it's not going to be a good day. It's not going to be a good day. They had... The law, they had circumcision, but what they didn't have was faith. They didn't believe. They didn't trust that God would be faithful to his promises, and therefore they were not faithful to theirs towards him. And Paul makes this declaration that in chapter 3, verse 9, he says, what shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage as Jews? He says, not at all, for we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. And so the question here, the reason that, that we're doing one through four today is because the way that the way that Paul writes this is like a big concentric circle and he takes a big sweep of the gospel through one through four. And then he goes five through eight. And then he goes nine through 11. He gets closer and closer as he goes in. And so if you preach Romans, which I've done in nine months, you spend like two months on chapters one, two, and half of three, which basically is only half of his first point, which is we're all bummed. Like it's not good. But the question that we're left hanging with is what is God going to do now? Because not only have us barbarian Gentiles defamed and devalued and desecrated as good creation, but even the people who he chose and he promised to love and to save, they have rejected him too. And all of us are waiting for the day when he will come and condemn the whole thing. So what's he gonna do? And in chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, Paul packs together the, this dense declaration of the gospel that he basically unpacks for us in chapters 5 through 8. But here's what he says in verse 21. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. 
This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. He says, but now, in other words, stop, something new has happened. And what has happened is God is unveiling for us what his faithfulness looks like now. That he is gonna, he's gonna come good on his promises in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what the, the law talked about. This is what the prophets talk about. And he says that there's a righteousness that's being given that Jesus Christ is offering to all who believe. Now, if you have the NIV, it says, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. That's wrong. And if you have a Bible, the two of you who actually brought a physical Bible, if you look down, it says, or through the faithfulness of. That's, I, I never, I don't point these things out because I want you to know the Bible you have, whatever the version is, it's fine, it's clear, you can read it. But sometimes they make mistakes on their interpretation. I think for, as you look at the theme of this book, to me it's clear that what Paul is saying is that this righteousness is given through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ to all who believe. It's his faithfulness to come after us as the king descendant of David, as the king of the world, son of God, and to come and rescue us from this wrath, this condemnation that both Jew and Gentile deserve. He says what's happening here is a new thing. And the new thing is that God is showing up with his faithfulness through the person of Christ. And he's basically gonna set free all those who trust in him. And it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. He says in verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. What he's doing here with this language of justified freely is he's saying that the verdict waiting for us in the future, the one he talked about in chapter two, the one he talked about in chapter one, that, that God will judge all of us. He says that the verdict in the future has been brought into the present. And to our surprise, he has declared us not guilty because of Jesus Christ. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. That the, the condemnation that could have been ours in the future has been brought, the judgment has been brought into the present and he has declared us not guilty. And Paul uses the language of justification, redemption synonymously. When Paul says redemption, he's thinking of a Roman street market. And in that market, there's a slave trade that's going on. And you could enter there and you could put forward money and you can buy a slave and set them free. It's called the redemption of the slave. Redemption is very big in Paul's theology. It's atonement theology because 
the Exodus story of Israel being slaves under Pharaoh and being set free from slavery by God, that is a controlling narrative for God's people. So he says, when Christ came and brought that future verdict into the present to say you are not guilty, he also set you free from being a slave to sin. That while all of us were under the power of sin, in Christ, through faith, you have been set free and declared not guilty. How did that happen? How in the world could God do that? Look at verse 25. He says, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Remember his, his covenant faithfulness, his loyalty to his promises. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And he did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so he could be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This picture of atonement, they would have understood because when they were set free in in the Exodus, there was a Passover lamb that they sacrificed and they took it, the blood, and they put it over their doorpost. And when the death angel passed by, they would pass over the houses that had this blood. And that's what they called the day of atonement. It was the day that God forgave their sin and passed over them. Paul's understanding of what Christ did on the cross is very much connected to that story. That because the blood of Christ has been put over your life, you stand not condemned. Because the blood of Christ has been applied to your life by faith, you are justified, made right with God. You are redeemed, set free from sin. Paul is writing a letter about the future and the present and the past, and he's saying this gospel affects all of it. That what he was doing with the people of God in the Old Testament, when they were rebelling and they were sinning against them and he was sending them to exile, he said, I left their sin unpunished so that I could place it on Christ. He says, what I'm doing to their sin back then is I'm letting it go until it could be satisfied by Christ's death. And he's saying, and, and for those of you who are sinning now for the sin here and forward, he's saying that I'm doing that to just demonstrate that I am faithful to you, to my love for you right now in the present so that you can be declared right with God through Christ. God's promise to his people doesn't change because his people are unfaithful. And God's promise to us doesn't change because we're unfaithful. What he does is increase his goodness and grace and take himself the punishment for our sins. So he can declare you not condemned 
And in the present, he can say, you're made right with God today. It's Jesus's faithfulness that we trust in. God has come back as a faithful king and he's set his people free by his own blood. He's faithful to his people in the past, not punishing their sin, and he's faithful to the people in the present by being just and making things right, but justifying us by his grace, making us right through his sacrifice. And what we ask is, well, what... Where do we fit in? What do we do now? Because if you get this, you will understand that Jesus has done everything we need to be done. He's done everything the world needs to be done. When you think about your own life, if I asked you today, do you feel right with God? Most of us would say, no. Because you know your life, you know your story. There is a death song that you hear in your head all day long that accuses you. You're not good enough. You never did that right. You don't, right? And this voice of accusation, this voice of condemnation. When we get to Romans 8, Paul will unpack what's happening here and declare there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What that means is that death song needs to get put to death because the song that your soul is now free to sing is a freedom song. Free at last, free at last. You're free. You've been set free by the king. What that means for us is that when that accusation comes, we recognize I'm not trusting in my faithfulness, which is sort of up and down and all over the place. I'm trusting that Jesus was the faithful one. He was the good Israelite who fulfilled the law. He was the one that loved his God and his neighbor perfectly on my behalf. And he is the God who came after me in love and set me free. God and man in one, faithful. And he did that because he loves you. That's by grace we have been saved through faith, right? What Paul does here in chapter four, and we're just gonna hit it for a second, he basically says, look, this is how it's always been. This is what, what, what has happened in Christ is the fulfillment of a promise that God made to Abraham. Look with me at 4.1 through 3. He says, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If in fact Abraham was justified by works, then he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Basically, he's quoting Genesis 15. It's a story where Abraham has become very wealthy and yet he still doesn't have a child of his own. He's about 100, Sarah's about 90. Um, he doesn't really see it happening. 
I don't think Sarah's up for it. And yet God promises, no, you and her will have a child. That is the child of the promise. And through your offspring, all the people of the world, Jew and Gentile alike, will be blessed through you. So when Jesus becomes that sacrifice, and Jew and Gentile alike, right? Those who are of Abraham and those who got adopted in can be declared righteous, can be declared innocent and right with God because of Christ. Paul's saying that is the promise he made to Abraham being fulfilled. And what Abraham did was he didn't earn, he didn't earn his righteousness, he received it from God because he believed. Look at verse 18. It said, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. So what this means is that God's faithfulness is, God's righteousness is his faithfulness to make a promise to us and keep it. Our righteousness is to trust that promise. And so what we're called to trust in now is Christ, the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. You have been set free, and you have been made right with God today. And the apostle goes on at the end of four to say these words that was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us. That means you and me to whom God will credit righteousness for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He was delivered over to death for our sins and he was raised to life for our justification means he died on behalf of our sins and when he was raised to life, it was the declaration that he said, paid in full, set them free. I paid it in full, they are no longer guilty. That means there is no wrath waiting for you. There is no condemnation coming at you. It means that you and I are recipients of a God that is so much better than you thought he was. Not only would he be just, but he would also be the justifier. And he's saying, look, I'm not expecting you to be Jesus. I'm expecting you to bank your heart on Jesus, right? I'm not looking at your faithfulness. I'm trusting in Christ's faithfulness. And so we finish up this big swoop on one through four, and we'll slow down next week, five through eight. But 
But do you see why Paul looks at this gospel, looks at Jesus, son of a David, king of the world, and looks at a divided church over religious and ethnic lines and says, that is so damaging to what Christ accomplished. Do you see why any hint of religious superiority is absolutely heretical to the gospel of Christ? Of us being right and them being wrong. Christ is our hope. Him being right is what we're counting on. All of us are wrong apart from him. Do you see God's absolute goodness to you and to his creation in giving us a king that would be a crucified king? That the king himself would set his people free with the payment of his own body and blood so that you could be declared not guilty, totally free. We're coming to a table today where we eat this bread and we drink this wine. And when we do, we're remembering this. We're remembering Jesus Christ, son of David, king of the world, crucified and resurrected so I could be right with God today. And wherever you are, you are made right with God. You might have some things to tell them, right? You might still have the posture of one who is bent over to self-love. You might have a heart that you keep hardening, but that's not big enough to keep you away from God. Christ's death is bigger than your ability to be a jerk, right? For your, his death is sufficient. You've been made right. You just aren't entering in to your own belovedness and your own forgiveness and your own freedom. You're basically that slave in Paul's slave market who got set free and took a few steps and then went back in and put the chains on your wrist and took a seat in your cell and said, that's good, thanks, but no thanks. You're still free. You're just sitting in the cell for some reason. God is absolutely so much better. And so what, what you need to see, what I need to see, is that the power of sin is broken. And it's broken not by you fighting it, but by you trusting the one who broke it. Christ's death condemned your sin and set you free and declared you right with God. And so you go, well, what do we do? What do we do? Well, we do what Abraham did. We do not waver in unbelief in this promise, but be strengthened in faith and give glory to God. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning as not only our personal Savior, God, but as the one who is putting the world back together, as the crucified and resurrected King, 
the hope of Israel and the hope of all of us who are far off. Today we pray that we would have we would glimpse that your spirit would open the eyes of our heart, that we would see how good and how beautiful you are. That we would see that you are restoring what you created and we destroyed. That we would see that today your door is open wide, your arms are open wide. And those scars that are showing us your pierced hands declare that today every single person in this room is made right with you. The question is, God, will we walk by faith in your faithfulness? Will we stand in the freedom of your redemption? And will we soften our hearts to give you praise, to dance in joy, and to declare that you are the faithful God who has been faithful to us. All we can do today, God, is believe and bank our hearts that Christ is faithful for us. Come, God, by your spirit and enthrone Christ in our hearts, the king of the world and the king of our life and our hope and set us free from the small, worthless gods that we worship. And strip away all of the pride that we have over being right our religious security because we think we vote right or we think right. Come, Holy Spirit, into this place and let us taste what it means to be right, which means to be right with you. We're at peace with you today because of Jesus. So let us taste your peace, God. Have your way among us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amagodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.